Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great episode for you today. So let's get right into it. I had the opportunity earlier today to speak with one of the archivists from the archives, and that's archives with a Q, as it is Canada's LGBTQ2 plus archive down in Toronto. I really enjoyed this conversation with Lucy, talking about not only the resources that are available at the archives, both in terms of the archival material, but also some of the exhibits that they put on, but also the challenges associated with the past year and and moving things online, the digitization process. And then we also get into the voices that are included in their collection at the archives compared to what you might get at certainly the National Archives here in Ottawa or even provincial archives or local regional archives across the country. Really fascinating to get into the dynamics of preserving material that tends to be excluded from other collections. So would definitely encourage everybody to check out the material that is available at the archives. We get into how to get in touch with them towards the end of the interview. And there are some amazing resources available and Lucy gets into all that. So let's get right to that conversation. All right. And Lucy from the archives, Canada's LGBTQ2 plus national archive joins us from Toronto. Lucy, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing pretty good. It's very muggy here. It's actually yes. disgusting. <laughs> yes, it is. It is unpleasant here uh, in Ottawa as well. But I will say that uh, we're not BC. And I'm uh, oh, certainly God. thinking about all the folks out there struggling with that heat wave yeah. uh, and, and hope everyone's doing doing well with that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where they might not have the humidity that we have, but certainly it's uh, it, it's not great out there. So there's really no refuge anywhere in the country right now, it seems. Yeah, no, it's really bad. Um, my friend lives in Yellowknife just told me that it's 30 degrees and she's going swimming. So There you go. Wow. Well, yeah, at least the lakes and, and the waterways up there would still be nice and cold. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so as everyone's coping as best they can with the heat, uh, Lucy, I'm very excited to talk to you about the archives. For anyone who doesn't know, I, I tried to tee it up a little bit in the intro but how would you describe the archives and what the role of the archives is for not only historians potentially doing research, but just the general public and the audience that you serve? Yeah, um, the archives is an archive with a national mandate, formerly called the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives, established in 1973. And we acquire, preserve, provide public access to materials by and about LGBTQ2 plus folks, primarily in Canada. And we are a community archive, which means we collect records from community members. That means like everybody who has sort of made an impact on queer life in Canada and or just wants to donate their records, period. You don't have to be like a famous person to donate your records. We have like records from like youth and like everyone my neighbor down the street and like any sort of record that could possibly be important for future research certainly for me most of my research that I was doing as a as a graduate student was based in Ottawa at the National Archive I use I've used provincial archives 
throughout my career. I've been to university archives. In what way would you say that this a community archive, in particular this community, is different from what you might see at a government archive, whether it's provincial or federal, or even though the, the some local regional archives that you have, but they're all sort of in the umbrella of the state and maintaining government records. So how would you describe the community archive as being real different for anyone who might be coming in to do research? One of the main differences is that the archives doesn't receive any sustainable or um, institutionalized funding. So we're entirely self-funded. And that sort of like propels a lot of like yeah. the necessities of like the kind of work that I do. Sure. Then like other major differences would be that the archives is started and is for community. And because of being for community and being started by community and like not being a receiver or we don't get government funding or institutional funding, we are independent. So we are one of the largest independent LGBTQ2 plus archives in the world. So it's a unique situation in the sense that community knowledge is really um, emphasized and voices of folks, their personal experiences and like on the ground sort of, yeah, experiences are heard um, or work to be heard. So how would you describe then some of the voices then that are included in this archive that might be absent from those other ones? You know, you, you, if you go to Library and Archives Canada, you get, you know, parliamentary reports, you get prime ministerial papers. In my case, you get everything the CBC wrote down between its creation <laughs> in 1936 to when I stopped reading in 1945, like yeah. every single piece of paper. So, you know, again, very institutional in that. So what sort of voices do you see included more in your collection that might be missing from some of these more centralized institutions? I mean, obviously we collect records from the LGBTQ2 plus community. Largely those records are erased or excluded from more institutional archives or just like not highlighted in particular, like, or not described. So, you know, you can call those like archival erasure, archival silences, so we, we differ in that sense, like, but also the archives in and of itself is not, pro, it's not an unproblematic institution. It's a, it has its own history of like inequitable collecting and like racism and, you know, transphobia and all of the things that you find in broader society. Mm -hmm. It's just that within the community, it's like, it becomes like more apparent when like this BIPOC organization is not included in the archives, even though they've been active for so many years. And that is the same as like government archive, for example, but it's just because we're a community archive and we have the mandate of trying to be inclusive of community, whereas a government archive doesn't necessarily have that sure. um, in the same way, it's a huge problem. <laughs> right. right, for sure. And it's interesting to hear you describe it in that way, because it seems like when you're when you're speaking, it sounds almost like that the archive development is mirroring in a way the way in which certain parts of the community, or at least the activist part of the LGBTQ plus community, has been at least written about, where you get that movement in the 1960s, 70s that kind of centers around 
whiteness in a sense that that's where a lot of the public activism is coming from. And there is a ratio of, of BIPOC communities. You also get, you, you mentioned transphobia. There's also bi erasure that you see mm-hmm. sometimes within the mm-hmm. community. So, so is it almost like that, that the, the archive for as much as it's collecting material, it's preserving the history of these communities to a certain extent, it, it almost feels to me like it's reflective of certain aspects of that community at the same time. Yeah, for sure. It's to do with how the archives was founded. So it was founded in 1973 out of the body politic, which was Canada's gay liberation newspaper, um, which operated from 71 to 87 and now continues as Extra, which is like the newspaper. There's Extra in Toronto, there's Extra in Ottawa. And the folks that worked at the body politic were like hugely active in the activist sense, advocating for their rights, but the large majority of them were like white men. There were some women involved as well, but like there was like a majority white men contingent. Sure. So yeah, it's like reflective of the folks who started the body politic and the body politic then became the founding collection of the archives. And a lot of the records have come from that collection that's our largest collection. Yeah, again, that makes sense. If that those are the people who are starting this this institution, it makes sense that they're going to start with their own material. So over however long it's been, well, since 1973, what steps has the archive taken to broaden out the collection process? And just in general, how does the institution seek out, find new items for the collection? Because I, I would imagine there has to be some sort of a balance there between stuff that would just automatically go to a provincial or even the national archives or, or a regional archive and stuff that, I don't know, I, I hate to say there's stuff that is of no value because I'm sure there's value to everything, <laughs> but you know, like things that maybe it might not be worth the investment to keep potentially. Like what, where is that balance and just how does the archive go out, find new things to add to its collection? I mean, that is a good question. It has definitely changed over time. The archive, up until about 10-ish years ago, had no paid staff. So everyone was a volunteer that came in. They came in a couple nights a week or one night a week for three hours, perhaps. And so, like, capacity to do outreach or to target specific communities was, like, less compared to now also they sort of practiced what we call passive collecting versus what we're trying to do now which is more active collecting active collecting means like building relationships with particular community members that are underrepresented in the archives which often because of the history of racism transphobia by erasure etc in the archives requires establishing like a relationship over time with folks so in order for them to feel like safe enough to donate their records so for example we've been working with one donor building a relationship over the past like maybe three years to donate their records and just the other day he finally decided to donate them they don't fill like the gap entirely in the collection but like they are like really important records that like we're lacking in the collection. Yeah. 
so so it's a whole process then of building trust uh, mm-hmm. with, with the individual, not only to preserve the, the material, I would imagine, but of course, maybe even more importantly, to ensure that that story is included in a meaningful and, and in a proper way. And mm-hmm. that, that they're, they're ensured that that is going to be the case. So it, it's, it's interesting to me to hear you talk about having to do that, because again, if you contrast that with the, say the federal government and the way the archives work here, I know a couple of people who worked at Library and Archives Canada, which will still do. And, you know, when Stephen Harper leaves government, when he's not the prime minister anymore, automatically everything just shows up and they mm-hmm. have to process all the material, right? They don't have to create a relationship with mm-hmm. the Harper and the Harper government. Everything's just coming right to them. So very different uh, for you to have to to build those collections or to build those relationships in order to add to the collection. And, and in your experience, what would you say makes good relationship building within the community when you are really trying to get somebody to trust you in that way? It's, it's not just the same way as maybe other institutions or museums, or maybe it is, I don't know, but in just preserving the stuff, like there, there's so much meaning to the individual stories here. So, you know, you mentioned that it's three years, but how hard can that be at times to just ensure that everyone feels safe and they are ensured that, that you will protect them, protect their story and share it in meaningful ways. Ooh, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, to touch on your like Stephen Harper point, the difference yeah. between the government and our archives is that it's like an automatic process with the federal government or any government is be- because the you know archives are colonial projects. For sure. So we try and push against the colonial project in a sense, even though like it's impossible to do because I, you know, we are working within this colonialist framework. And we try and do that through like a variety of ways, which is establishing relationships and thinking about care um, and community care in like a more uh, holistic way, I suppose. But that makes sense, right? That to to build relationships, go beyond just the preservation or just go beyond the story. Like it, it really does have to be, as you say, very holistic, that it goes beyond what I think average individual walking down the street, what is an archive? I would imagine they would say you have records and you save the records, but that's not exactly what's going on here. Another example would be dealing with folks who are underhoused or houseless because they are, you know, marginalized by society in some way. Folks with mental health issues who have been like these large Canadian figures in like the queer and trans world, but now they might be underhoused. And so we have, like, for example, we've been working on going with a member, a community member from the trans community to um, establish relationships with trans folks and sort of, like, work to establish relationships to see if they're comfortable donating their materials to the archives. So usually this entails a lot of conversations, like in-person visits, potentially sitting down and talking about just what an archive is and, like, what the procedure is and you know how their records are protected and like how things can be restricted from researcher access and how privacy is considered and what is done that kind of thing so there's a lot of like yeah like care that is taken or like work to be taken in like uh, making sure folks feel comfortable 
So how do we take that from the, the personal relationship, say, to the serving of the community at large? So I would imagine there has to be or would be some overlap in the strategies there, even though you're going from maybe dealing on one-on-one situation or even if it's a group in terms of donating things to serving a community at large and becoming that resource and safe space, not even just necessarily for the LGBT. LGBTQ2 plus community, but anyone who might walk in and, and want to look at the, the materials that are available. So how do you take that process or is there a relationship between that process of building relationships with individual donors into becoming an educational resource for the community? And how does the archive go about serving the community? Well, pre-COVID, the easiest example <laughs> um, I could give was, yeah. is that I suppose unlike more traditional archives, we will have evening public service hours, like we're open in the evenings, certain days of the week, and people can just walk in off the street and they can ask um, a volunteer if, to see a record or they want to learn about something and the volunteer will help them out right. or the volunteer will give them a tour of the archives. So there's that like very accessible way, like informal, I suppose. And then there is programming, for example, sort of reaching out to the community to do um, events or partner on things or provide resources for particular organizations and what they're doing, sort of like establishing relationships with different community groups. We do a lot of work on folks who are doing their own collecting projects and how to sort of go about that because we know that you know, someone who is part of a particular community is going to have like the best relationship to engage with their own community members to do oral histories and like create those stories, like record those stories. And then maybe those will be donated to us later, maybe not. But in the end, it's recorded somewhere. So you mentioned that that's pre-COVID. Now, obviously, (laughs) you know, in the COVID world, things things have changed. I haven't been to an archive in almost two years now. Uh, of any variety or library uh, for that matter. Everything's been mm-hmm. curbside, all, all that kind of stuff. So over the past year, how have concerns over that level of accessibility and outrage changed the way that the archive is, is doing things? I think like most archives, there have been a lot of like ad- adaptations that have been had to be yeah. made. I have people on the waiting list just because it's impossible to like give them all the records they want. But also we've been doing a lot of digital work, digitizing material for folks when they need it, if it's like digitizable. It's also a question of like capacity and what me and the other archivist that works at the archives can provide for folks. It's definitely changed how we are thinking about our future. We were thinking about this before, but it's definitely like sort of become more pertinent thinking about and like looking into digital preservation systems and stuff like that. But to, in order to make records like more accessible, but that is like ultimately a funding issue. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Doing <laughs> um, that is very expensive. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, I don't know, $20,000 a year. So right. next level yeah. um, <laughs> for, for us. So working with a lot of our volunteers to do digital exhibits because those seem really popular with folks. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to have a physical exhibit in this space for two years or a year and a half. But at the archives, we do have a physical exhibit space that was just about to be 
used before we went into lockdown. With respect to to that, in your mind, what makes a good exhibit, both both the the physical and the virtual? Because as you mentioned, there there's a space there that you can use, and yet over the past eighteen months or so, or whatever it's been, everything's had to pivot and transition to pretty much exclusively online. So have you noticed a change in what really engages people, or has there been any sort of discussion about? maybe separate exhibits or just the best way to engage people through exhibits, whether it's physical or, or virtual. I, I imagine there's certain things that remain the same while others that have to be for obvious reasons, entirely different. So, so how has the, that changed over the course of the past year? There's been a high demand for photo- photos. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, usually folks really, really like um, oral histories. They really like media, AV, moving image and um, audio. We're sort of like trying out some interactive things. If I could use the example, right, of of the website of of Active History and and this show, like we noticed, or I noticed, I shouldn't speak for any of the other folks at the site. I noticed that initially last March, April, virtual engagement or digital engagement went down on certain things. So podcasting went down, just general reading of articles on the site went down, and then it rebounded more through the course of the fall. So the the digital output, we've always been a digital thing, but if that's reflected elsewhere, that at least for things that, like say a podcast, which tends to be, not always, but tends to be consumed mobily by people. So they're Mm -hmm. out walking around or driving around or working out that's when people tend to listen when those immediately went away and people hadn't quite transitioned to new routines yet the numbers and this isn't just this show it was podcast wide just the okay. whole industry went down and then as people got into new routines things slowly opened up uh, and certainly that's the case in the United States and the numbers podcast numbers are, are up again in the United States but as people adjusted we saw that change in the traffic and Mm. it it strikes me that that would be the same especially for the stuff you mentioned when you're talking about av material photographs those things that really play well in a virtual environment that on physical exhibits may may not be the same right how many times have you been to a physical exhibit there's a video on a loop that people might stand for like seven seconds and and watch and then and leave whereas a virtual exhibit you might watch the whole thing Right. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of thing that, at least to me, or what I have found over the past year, you just see what truly engages people digitally and how different that can be from a physical space. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the main differences for me going yeah. to a um, physical space versus being at home and looking at a digital exhibit is that you are at home. And you can spend as much time or sit on the couch or whatever you want to do to relax and take in the content. It definitely gives it a different, you get a different experience. There's a whole different vibe. Yeah. There's nobody behind you standing there waiting for you to leave the the panel or whatever it is you're looking at. You can, you can spend as much time on it as you want. Yeah, exactly. We're in front of you. Um, (laughs) don't know about the traffic on our exhibits, but we have put up several new exhibits in the past uh, year and a half. 
every time I direct folks to them, they like love them. So it seems like it's useful. It's also just like very consumable, right? Yeah. So it's like a one-stop shop for all of the facts, key point list. So yeah, I think it's way easier than going through the database online and like trying to find some records that might be interesting to you. I usually end up directing folks to the exhibits when they don't have a specific idea of what they really want yet and there they can sort of like maybe get grounded and use it as like a jumping off point for other research so do you think that this will be a long-term shift these immediate things that that we've noticed over the past year and and is this the discussion that is happening with with the archives and and whether or not people will come back once you're allowed to open again or will they come back in the same numbers do we need to split resources more evenly between in-person versus digital. I'm really curious to, to know how people are thinking about that. Hopefully we are in the tail end of, of the COVID <laughs> yeah. period as we speak. Yeah. And, and maybe something will happen that, that it's not the tail end, and, but hopefully that, that is not the case. Uh, but I'm just curious is that looking forward, is there an expectation that we'll go right back to, or, or you'll go right back to where we were in February, 2020, or, or what amendments and what changes might you be anticipating? That is a good question. That's something we're still talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right now we will be opening up whenever we open up to um, 15% capacity for the whole building. Hmm. So that means one person in the reading room, probably for a set number of hours. So I don't think we'll necessarily, we're not going to have like the same open door policy at the beginning. Obviously, it's going to have to be very regimented and scheduled and limited. But I don't know the future. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it would be very strange to think about next year or the year after people coming in the space as they did before. But maybe it'll happen. We used to have like large events in the building like large community events where there would be like over 100 people in the building in in evening. So I would like to be able to feel safe enough to do that again. Digitally, I do anticipate there being more of a desire mm-hmm. for digital records. There has been, but everyone thankfully throughout the whole time has been like super understanding about just like not me not being able to get into the building and not being able to digitize. Right. XYZ for them. A lot of folks want to come in and do all of their PhD research, right? So sure. they are really used to using archives and like understand that it can't be digitized. Yep. I've been trying to supplement some folks with audiovisual material and direct them elsewhere to digital resources. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm curious, I should have asked this earlier, but how big is the collection? Like, how big it, is the collection? Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, and I always, I always get confused. Like, I know that sometimes some archives I've I, I'm, the one in in Madison, Wisconsin, in particular, it described it by feet of, mm-hmm. of paper, and mm-hmm. I was I I didn't know if that's industry standard or not, uh, but it, it, just in general, like let's let's say I wanted to read everything in the archive, how long <laughs> estimate would it take me? Like ten years, or like I have no idea. Oh my gosh! Well, yeah, the standard is measured. In, in Canada, we'll do meters or centimeters. Sure. Or if you're in the government, they'll talk about kilometers. <laughs> um, <laughs> because they, or we think about records based on the size of the box. 
Right. So they'll measure a banker box and it's like, I forget however many centimeters it is. I clearly haven't done physical purchasing in a while. <laughs> I haven't been in the building um, for a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we talk about records and collections and meters. But to give sort of like an example, we have probably one of, if not like the largest um, LGBTQ2 plus periodical or serial collection in the world. And that's over 10,000 titles, which like includes like all of the issues within those titles. So it's extremely large. And this includes the zines, newsletters, newspapers, magazines, a huge amount of porn. Like, you know, I could go on and on like um, conference bulletins, like all of the stuff that is serially produced. And it's also like super unique because um, we have like a huge international segment of it with uh, periodicals like from around the world that were sort of collected in a newspaper exchange when the body politic was active so they had an ongoing relationship with many many like queer groups around the world where they would send and receive each other's publications so sometimes they'll have researchers email me from i had one from portugal the other day saying you have this it's not in Portugal. Oh, Can wow. you send it to me? And I got one from Colombia like a while ago. And they were like, you have all of the copies of this gay gay newsletter that was from the 80s. We don't have them. Or we don't have all of them. Can you send me them? I don't know how to answer your question. No, but that's, uh, yeah, well, yeah, you, there's probably no way to actually answer that question. Uh, but that's pretty cool. Just to think of like, sort of the breadth of, of what's there and, and sort of the international scope of it. That's, uh, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it, well, it sort of shows how discriminated against the queer community has been around the world and like to actually like the resources that Canada and like this archive has had or have been able to like maintain even though it's been really difficult at times to like keep the records safe and like be able to house them for so long so it shows both sides of that in general how would you say that that historians can ensure that lgbtq2 plus stories are reflected in the stories that we tell because so often and and this was certainly my experience as a grad student you you go to the collection you want to see. And again, for me, it was broadcasting. So I, I go, I, I read the broadcasting stuff at, in LAC and, and a couple other places. And the stories that you would have aren't going to be necessarily reflected in some of these centralized places. So how can we ensure that the stories that you have and are preserving are included and that we don't reproduce the historical erasure that can exist in centralized archives in our work that we are producing when we are using archival resources. I think the important thing is to remember, just like any community, the LGBTQ2 plus community is not a monolith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Be curious, contact your local queer community archives, or you can send me an email, check out the database online. Don't assume that someone that you see in a more traditional archive is heterosexual or is cisgender a lot of that has been erased in more traditional archives and yeah also don't assume that if it's not in the archives that it didn't happen yeah right for sure like i can think of an example with you just mentioning researching um broadcasting 
I don't know if you knew about this person, but we have her records in the collection. Shirley Shea was a radio broadcaster. She was like, she was an author. She wrote under a pseudonym, um, but she was also a lesbian and was like super feminist. But yeah, I was born, you know, in Sudbury in 1924. And, you know, I don't know if you would, you know, if you read about CBC, I don't think she was a CBC radio broadcaster, but she's not included in right. any archive beyond this one, I don't think. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's somebody who I personally am not familiar with. I'm going to say in my defense, it's because I stopped reading in 1945. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so she, she's a little totally. after that. Uh, but but I pulled that, like, yeah, I just pulled this up. Yeah, like, super interesting story. And, and you're right. Somebody who, if I was studying this era, wouldn't have been in the material that I was looking at. And therefore is, is someone who should be included based off of everything I'm reading here. Like, very influential within broadcasting at, at multiple stops across the country. So you're right that just to think broadly about it, to, to look elsewhere, to, to get in touch with a variety of folks, don't get tunnel vision on mm-hmm. the centralized CBC stuff. Yeah, so yeah, just don't get stuck on the main mainstream stuff necessarily. And maybe think about how com- community knowledge has been transferred differently versus textual records. I think that's becoming more understood amongst researchers, but it's hard to deal with AV stuff sometimes. <laughs> it, it really can be. Uh, I'm sure, for sure you know. <laughs> yes, uh, no, no question, no question about it. Uh, those big reel-to-reel tapes. I never want to see another one uh, yeah. ever again. <laughs> I mean, we are in the digital dark age, so yeah. it's. Uh, <laughs> like that's not even a problem compared to what we're facing right now yeah uh, very, very true so if, <laughs> if people want to visit the archives if people want to get in touch and keep pace with what's going on and, and whenever things reopen potentially visit what's the best way for them to do that where can they find some more information um, you can go to archives.ca a-r-q-u-i-v-e-s.ca and there you can see the digital exhibits online and you can search the online collections portal and you can also submit a reference request and you can, you know, send me an email, see what's going on. There's always something happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we encourage everybody to do it. Uh, lots of great stuff on that site. So check it out. Lots of really terrific information. And even just if you're interested in com- the idea of community archives, if you've never worked in community archive. A lot of uh, terrific material. So we will link to that as well in the show notes and be sure to check it out. So Lucy, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me this afternoon. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So there you have it. My discussion with Lucy, one of the archivists over there at the Archives, Canada's LGBTQ2 plus archive. And as Lucy mentioned, do check out all the resources. We will link to everything in the show notes and in the post over at activehistory.ca. So do check all of that out. And my thanks to Lucy and to our friends at the archives for helping set up this conversation. Really enjoyed that one. So that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you everybody for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, rating, comments, all that good stuff helps keep us growing helps us beat those evil algorithms and let other people know about this show. And do head on over to activehistory.ca under the podcast tab. You can find all of our past episodes as well as some of the new 
posts that have come out in the past few weeks. Really going strong here as we get into the summer months. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed what's available over on the website, so check that out. And do let me know what you want to hear on the show, historyslam at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So that will do it for this week. We'll be back with you next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.